This paper I'm about to read in part is a sequel. I've never done a sequel before. I'm usually the person who you do it once, move on, don't go back. But it's a sequel to this book that I did 19 years ago called Faith, Stories and the Experience of Black Elders. And in the book, what I was trying to capture was the theology of the Windrush generation, what had allowed people like my parents and, and another half a million people who traveled from the Caribbean islands between 1948 and 1965, what had enabled them to survive, to make homes, to make such a, a significant contribution to British life? I was a very, very inexperienced researcher at the time. I just got my PhD a year before, and this was the first postdoctoral project I did. And I learned an essential lesson in the Dunn's book. It's quite a slim book. It's only 110 or so pages. And that's because I realized that the fundamental danger of switching off the tape recorder too soon. All the best stuff that all these participants told me was once they thought the tape recorder was safely turned off and they could be more honest. And because at the time, being a very young researcher, I was overly concerned about the representation of the theologies and the positionalities of these individuals, that rather than go back and try to capture what I knew were deep, thick descriptions of their religiosity and spirituality, I figured I should write a good book that would represent them in good orthodox Christian terms. And hence the book is very slim. Because what I have come to understand, particularly about Caribbean people, is that we have complex forms of subjectivity. And it's complex forms of subjectivity because our history is contested and problematic. Famous Caribbean novelist, Carl Phillips wrote a book called A Final Passage where he reflected upon not just the middle passage of enslavement but the final passage of people coming from Britain back to the Caribbean. And the difficulty of relocating because in that period of 40, 50 years they had changed and the Caribbean had changed. And that contested sense of what it is to be a black human being creating the image and likeness of God with a trajectory, a human trajectory, that is complex from Africa to the Caribbean to the UK and questions of retention and dissonance built into that experience. So this is, the work I'm doing is a kind of sequel to this. First, I want to start with some reflections on Western mission Christianity. I'm interested in the missionary imperative of the Western missionary Christianity enterprise because of the ways in which it was the desire of the English church, particularly English, but, but actually all parts of the UK and other European sending nations to propagate the faith as it's received from an engagement with the Great Commission, as detailed in Matthew's Gospel. And within that, replete within mission Christianity, I argue, was a deep-seated anti-blackness, anti-Africanness, which had exemplified its form itself in a form of non-contextualized, disembodied faith that arose from the collusion between oppressed black bodies and West and white hegemonic power. The problem with the historic enactment of, the, of Western mission Christianity that arises from the dictates of the Great Commission 
was an ally to Eurocentric notions of superiority and white supremacy. It gave rise to European mercantilist expansionism and the conquest of non-European cultures. It's not for nothing that in 1857, in Oxford, David Livingstone said that the basis of the British Empire was the three C's, commerce, civilization, and Christianity. African-American womanist theologian Linda Thomas, she critiques the Methian tradition of mission, arguing that the locus of power lies with those who are sent as opposed to those who are the recipients of such missionary activities. It says, go and make disciples, go and spread. It doesn't say anything about whether the people want you or not. They have no agency. Interesting enough, there was a different model in Luke, but that's not the one that we often invoke when thinking about mission in the context of white Western imperialism. The missionary impulse of the Great Commission was interpreted as a means of imposing Eurocentric values on cultures of non-European peoples across the world, arising from the basis of superiority of white European religious, cultural aesthetics and theological norms. Western missionary Christianity formed a collusive relationship with white European hegemony that insisted on providing the theological underscoring for the transatlantic slave trade. When English travellers first began to encounter black people on a prolonged basis, particularly through the excursion onto the African continent, it soon became clear that their existing notions of anti-blackness were buried deep in their theology and helped to give rise to dangerous notions of African otherness. The tensions between religious faith, ethnicity and nationality were explored by means of specious forms of biblical interpretation. One of the main proof texts for resolving the issue of justifying enslavement of Africans within a Christian framework arose from Genesis 9, 18-25, the curse of Ham. African-American scholars such as Asante have asserted, estimated, sorry, up to 50 million Africans were transported across a 400-year period. Inherent within mission Christianity is the demonization of the black body. Anthony Penn has undertaken detailed investigative work looking at the dialectic of the existential material realities of black bodies and the phenomenon that is Christianity. In Terror and Triumph, Penn rehearses a contested and troubled relationship between white slaveholding Christianity and black bodies, outlining the levels of demonization and virulent denigration that provided the essential backdrop to the transatlantic chattel slavery epoch. Outlining the apparent ease and the complicity with which Christianity colluded with the epistemological frameworks underpinned, underpinning the mission of slavery, Pin says, and I quote, in short, scripture required that English Christians began their thinking on Africans with an understanding that Africans had the same creator. Yet they were at least physically and culturally different, and this difference had to be accounted for. As we shall see, a sense of shared creation did not prohibit a ranking within the created order in which Africans were much lower than Europeans." End quote. This sense of a deep, prevailing anti-black sentiment replete within notions of Greek antiquity and practiced within English particularly Western mission Christianity, was given added piquancy in the del deliberate attempts to use the developments of early Christian theology 
as a means of reinforcing the essential depraved and base status of the black body. Kelly Brown Douglas demonstrates how a particular outworking of Pauline Platonized influenced theology wouldn't that downplace the concrete materiality of the body in favor of the abstract and the spirit was used as a means of demonizing black bodies. Kelly Brown Douglas writes, and I quote, accordingly it is Platonized Christianity that gives rise to Christian participation in contemptible acts and attacks against human bodies, like those against black bodies. Not only does Platonized Christianity provide a foundation for easily disregarding certain bodies, it also allows for the demonization of those bodies who have been sexualized, end of quote. And so one can amplify this prevailing sense of an incipient anti-black strain within the corporate edifice of Western missionary Christianity where one considers the ways in which black Christianity itself has often internalized those strictures against the black body in their own corporate operations and forms of religiosity. Anthony Pinn, again, has analyzed the ways in which black Christians often remain at best indifferent to the material needs of the black body and seek to transcend it and to, and to transcend its supposed de, uh, despised nature and the demonization emerging from tenets of white Christian slaveholding thought and practice. This brings me to African Caribbean religio cultural retention. In terms of the contemporary practice of particularly African Caribbean Christianity in Britain, I have learned through the initial research in writing faith stories and the experience of black elders, but more recently in terms of more ethnographic work with African Caribbean Christians of a whole variety of denominations and traditions in Britain, including Baptists. To look at the obverse side of our religiosity and spirituality, those practices and traditions that go back to Africa and have been developed and mediated through our sojourn in the Caribbean has been part and parcel of what it is to be black and Caribbean and Christian in Britain. I have returned to the stories of my childhood and my mother in particular, but my aunt and the extended family of growing up in Bradford, West Yorkshire. Yeah, this is a Yorkshire accent. I'm particularly aware of the covert practices that my mother in particular would undertake as part of her lived experience of being a working class Jamaican woman living in post-war Britain. I learned very quickly of the importance of living in a material world in which the spirit world intersected and was real. And a particular practice that I've written about before, but which I want to reflect on again very quickly now, was the tradition of leaving an open Bible on your bed in your room in order to fight rogue and malignant spirits. As I left my home last night to go and stay with my brother, I left the Bible open on Psalm 23. 
There was little literature on this because, as I will show in a moment, this whole sense of religio-cultural retention has, has been underexplored, if it has been explored, not by theologians, but mainly by anthropologists and some cultural, cultural studies scholars. And the reason why it's not been studied is because it's been demonized by Western mission Christianity. These are the things that you were meant to leave behind when you were Christianized and stopped being savages or uncivilized. And so every time I would ask my mother why she left the Bible open at the Psalms in her, in her room, she would get embarrassed and say, well, that's just something I learned from my mother. And I would say, but why? And she says, oh, well, so never you mind, Anthony, you asked too many questions. And my response was, ask questions because that's how you taught me. She says, well, on this occasion, I'm not going to answer. There is that, and there are many other traditions, which I will get to in a moment, that are rooted in a, an African-derived retentive ethic around what it is to be religious and spiritual and Christian and holding all those things in tension. In a highly influential book, Three Eyes for the Journey, Dan Stewart looks at the relationship between African-derived religions and Christianity in Jamaica. Opening the Bible to run unclean spirits is not evangelical Protestant Christianity. But neither is it traditional African religion or anything akin to that, might, to that which might be discussed in the classical sense within continental Africa. This form of religious practice is definitely heterodox and reflects the alternative religious perspectives that make African Caribbean people like myself and my mother something more than just conventional Christians, but something less than being formal members of any other religious tradition. For my mother and her generation who had migrated to UK from the Caribbean, life was lived between, between the intersectionality of a service reality in which racism, discrimination, and being perceived as second-class citizens was juxtaposed with the subterranean form of epistemology that spoke of the mendacity and the egregious nature of British society. So the lives of the Windrush generation was ones that were sought to make sense of this layered reality to life in Britain by way of a rich diet of religious cultural repertoire that sought to interrogate life for its truth and for meaning. Leaving the Bible open on one's bed is but the tip of a large epistemological iceberg in terms of African Caribbean retention. And there's a whole list of things that are significant in terms of how one understands that spirituality. So, very quick, I just want to give a very, very real lived experience of this. A few months ago, one of my best friends died, a childhood friend. He had suffered from cancer, and we knew he was dying. And he left clear instructions as to how he wanted to be buried. He, like myself, had begun to think about his Christian heritage and think about his other dimensions of his spirituality that came from African Caribbean cultural retention and therefore left clear instructions as to how he wanted both his funeral and the funeral rites to be practiced. The problem is his wider family were very, very strict Pentecostals. And there then ensued a long conversation 
as to whether we should carry out his final wishes, and if we did, what would happen to our mortal soul if we did so. So one of the things he wanted us to practice was what's called the Nine Nights, which some of you may well be familiar with. This is part of the religious cultural African tradition that says that when someone dies, it takes their soul nine nights to transition over to the other side, to the spirit world of the ancestors. And in response, therefore, family and friends meet for nine successive nights. Now, there are lots of interpretation around this. I said largely anthropological and cultural, but, not, but less so theological around what is the purpose of this and what is happening. There was a comical element to this because the pastor found out this was going to happen and was determined that it should not happen on his watch. And so he was going to turn up to stop it. At which point, the family, including myself, just switched the place where we did it. So we had this covert enacting of this right. But that's not new. Because actually, one of the things I remember even when I was much younger in my early 20s was the way in which there was always this duality between the minister turning up to the house to offer pastoral care and close friends and relatives being there and participating in that and waiting for the pastor to leave. And then once the pastor left, and particularly if there was someone who had passed in the Caribbean, they probably knew that at some point they were being politely invited to leave so something else could happen whilst they were gone. This remains contested because, because of its demonization within the life experiences of African Caribbean people. We have yet to find a language for how we theologize around that and to wrestle with how it sits alongside our more surface orthodox Christian identities. So in this work, what I want to do as an ethnographic studies to talk, not just to that older Windrush generation, but particularly to talk to some of, uh, of their younger descendants, such as myself, and ask the question, how do these two things sit in tension, given that one has been demonized to such an extent that even to acknowledge that that's what you're doing is still, still remains problematic for many of us. Final story, on my last trip to Jamaica, I went to visit my dad. My parents went back to Jamaica in 1991 to retire to a little village called Belcastle in East Portland in Jamaica. My mom died six years ago, this February. And so we went to visit her grave, myself, my dad, and two of my cousins. And one of my cousins, who was exploring his African identity, brought a bottle of rum. Another retention is that when honoring the dead, a bottle of white rum is opened and the first drink, the first drop is poured onto the grave in order to remember the ancestors. And so he did this, he didn't ask permission, he just did it. And my dad turned to me and said, son, you got a PhD, is this okay? <laughs> And before I could speak, my cousin turned to me and said, I don't give a damn about your PhD, it is okay. At which point I said, I'm going with him, Dad. 
And the rest of the day was spent with my father, still reflecting on whether that was okay and whether my mother would be spinning in her grave or not. At which point I did kind of kneel down and said, no, Dad, I can't hear anything spinning underneath. How do we reflect theologically on that? Where is the space within our various church traditions that recognizes that? What's the role of ordained ministers in that role? That part of the reason why I think I'll be able to undertake the research is because I'm not clergy. If I were clergy, I suspect this would be an impossible research to do because the learned behavior for so many is that this is not what you tell religious people having been taught for so long that this is the kind of thing that you should have left behind when you were saved and sanctified. Finally, I see this as a repulsive mission Christianity because so much of what we have imbibed as a Christianity that came with us has taught us that at best to be us requires to let go of the things that sustained us long before the mission was turned up. And so the question is, can it be, can it be rehabilitated? And if so, who should do it? And what happens if you attempt to write it down and try and fix it? Thank you. It's very interesting how, even when I was growing up in a very evangelical church, that one of the things we, always, we were always warned against was the dangers of syncretism. Ooh, syncretism, we must not do syncretism. And really, what that meant was anything that was black and African was dangerous because it presupposes that Christianity is pure anything and, and there's no pure anything anyway. That actually, if you look at the development of Christianity, it is borrowed from all kinds of sources, borrowed from Greek philosophical sources, borrowed from lots of sources. It's only problematic when it's put in a black body and it's held within black epistemology. Therefore, I think one of the damaging things, I won't say it's the, the most thing, but is, is this whole paper and the, and the work comes out of the, almost that sense of dis-ease and embarrassment people like my mother and various other people feel about engaging in traditions and rituals and rites that give meaning, but somehow because they're not sanctioned by a white church, they somehow feel bad about it, when actually, if you look at the way in which white Christianity is borrowed from all over the place, they understood that actually, actually syncretism is a pejorative that is about power. So put it bluntly, if white people do it, and it's in the canon, and if it's overseen by Greek people, by Greek, meaning white, so there's a famous book by Robert Hood called Must God Remain Greek? And really what he's saying actually, must God remain white and European? And the answer is no. I, I think one of the most fundamental things they have to do is that they have to deconstruct whiteness. And deconstruct whiteness because actually <coughs> that operates as a synonym for what is often deemed as normativity. And to recognise <coughs> that as Robert Hood says in terms of God, that must God remain Greek, is that the agency and the power of the spirit is much broader than the categories that we have constructed for God that have largely come through the prism of white intellectual power. And actually, that when we look where the growth is, 
and the growth is not amongst those churches, the growth is amongst the very churches that you describe, then the clear the question is, clearly the Spirit is doing something, and I think the future of many of our churches is going to be how we harness the learning from that, because there is a sense in which the model of Christendom is dying. But actually that requires a huge sense of humility to acknowledge that the significance of the other and the agency of the other is that which the normative center needs to understand. But that's going to be hard because the, in my experience of being in the Methodist church, we spend a lot of time trying to find ways of reinventing church and not once do any of the people who do it ever go and talk to black people and find out what it is that they're doing. I'm not saying that everything that is done by African churches is something that, let's say, white majority churches want to emulate. But at least notice the fact that in growing, they're doing something right in terms of how they attend to the agency of the spirit that gives people enough confidence to want to come. But I think the truth is that Christendom is so embedded within our psyche here that I think, I think the church has to get a tad more desperate yet before they eventually turn around and ask black people anything, if I'm being blunt. At the moment, I don't think we're desperate enough to go and have a conversation with black people if the agency of Christianity is assumed, and it's interesting how missionary, how mission agency is about sending. It wasn't about embodiment. It was never the assumption that God was already in the place where they were going. It's the assumption that they were taking something with them. And until we refute those notions, the church will continue to die here and will grow in other places. Thank you. Thank you.